0: Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler.
1: Good morning, good morning. It's Thursday. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm here with a great guest. Stephen Mason, we'll come back to that in a minute. If you recognize that name, stay tuned. Um, Just want to uh, remind you about the two upcoming conferences that I've been talking about the last couple months. CALI, California Association of Licensed Investigators, is coming up next week, starting uh, Thursday with two pre-conference seminars. Um, It goes from the 30th to the 1st of December. June, and it's going to be in Las Vegas at the um, Westgate Hotel Las Vegas Resort. So there's two uh, pre-conference options: Brandon Perrin, forensic testimony evidence recovering, recovery the F T E R method, and Steve Rombom with the Fraternal Order of Investigators, hardcore computer aided investigation. Open source intelligence and digital officer safety. That is a mouthful. That is the title of his of his talk. All day pre conference seminars, and then starting um, Friday, Sat, and then Friday Saturday for the the uh, regular seminars. You still have time. It starts next Thursday. Get on board going to be a great conference. Uh, then the Nally Conference is at the DoubleTree Hotel in Philadelphia, July 18th and 19th, and I'll give you more details on future shows. So I have Steve Mason from uh, Gilbert, Arizona, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him because I know if I start asking him questions about his background, it would just be embarrassed because it's such a great background. <laughs> Hi, Steve. How are you, Francie? I'm good. This is Steve Mason. I'm introducing you. To our listeners. So, Steve's a licensed investigator. Um, he's been around uh, almost 20 years um, with prior federal, state, and law enforcement investigative experience. Steve and I've worked together, but we've never actually met in person, but it's really fun to talk to you on the show here, Steve. Um, Thank so, you. So, yeah, so he. Um, He's participated in the U.S. Marshal, because he was a U.S. Marshal. I was a senior U.S. Marshal, senior inspector. Um, The U.S. Marshal's top most wanted cases. And the Illinois licenses for bribes, corruption probe, investigation of federal escapees, discreet locates for international war crime suspects, and that sounds dicey. An investigation of serial killers and the capture of numerous individuals wanted for murdering government officials. So need I say more? He's had a lot of experience in all kinds of things. Um, I, I must say, though, uh, he's also somewhere along the line. He found time to graduate from the American Military University in Intelligence, summa cum laude, and he's just amazing. So welcome, Steve. Welcome to the show. Thank you.
2: Happy, happy to be here.
1: So um, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, today about the kinds of resources you can use in your cases. And uh, I we came across an article Steve had written in Pursuit magazine. Um, you all are familiar, those of you that are investigators know, are familiar with the online magazine called Pursuit. And he was talking about using calls for service records. Tell us a little bit about that, Steve.
2: So a calls for service record is basically a record that's maintained by a law enforcement jurisdiction that documents contact either with an individual or asset. And in that record, generally, you can find information about their contact, what the report number was, date and time that they had contact, and essentially what happened during that contact. And so it's a great resource to find information or intelligence on an individual or asset, especially if they weren't arrested as part of their criminal conduct. there will still be this calls for service records.
1: So are these, uh, are cars for service record public record?
2: Yes. Um, Well, at least in Arizona, obviously the state that you're in, mileage may vary. But we routinely request these records from all different states that our investigations take us to. Including California, which is an often often asked question that I get, and we're very successful in receiving these calls for service records back. So, I, I think kind of the key is, if, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, finding out maybe what the record is called in your jurisdiction. Sometimes they're called event histories, name checks, list of involvements, et cetera. But yeah, they're they're public records.
1: Well, I can tell you my experience that it used to be that you could go to the desk at the local police department and say what, tell them what you needed, and they just give it to you. That has changed, and uh, now they tell you it's it's not public record, and you kind of go through uh, telling them, gee, I, you know, I really need it, and uh, uh, can I talk to your supervisor? And you kind of go up the line. You end up getting it. But it is it is public record, but you have to fight for it in California, at least most places in California.
2: Yeah, Yeah, and that's correct. I've had a lot of um, struggles with trying to request records from various agencies in California. And I kind of so I always operate with the idea that anything produced by the government body is essentially a public record. Unless Mm -hmm. there's an exemption in the law that prohibits it from being released. And what I find with records clerks is sometimes they're just poorly trained or they're passing on information that their predecessors told them. And it's not always correct information. So there's a little bit of education that goes along with requesting public records. So as a private investigator, you know, it's, it's paramount that you become familiar with your individual state's public records law. So, you know, kind of how to combat those
1: denials. So, um, Okay, so what what tell me what the process you go through when it's denied initially.
2: So before I ever request a record, I'll research the type of information I'm requesting first to make sure that there's no exemption in the law that would prohibit me from having that public record. And then my next step is I'll I'll go online and I'll research the records department section of the law enforcement's website, to kind of get a feel for what their form says what they state their policies are. In Arizona, you're not required to prepare an agency's form nor the request record, but inherently I always do because you know, you wanna pick and choose your battles. But mm-hmm. I think the real key is to prepare a, a letter on your letterhead specifically requesting what it is you're looking for and citing you know the, the public records laws that allow you to have that information and then attaching that to the form and, you know, and if you can, I always recommend you go in person and file the forms because I, I've, I've noticed I'm more likely to get a denial if I file it by mail or email versus if I show up in person, because you Makes can sense. answer those, you can answer those quick questions or you can rebut those quick denials in person versus waiting for a snail mail to get back to you.
1: Yeah, it's, that's a really good point, actually, uh, because I think a lot of people do that and, and. It's almost a sure denial if you're sending a letter. I think, at least it seems like. Yeah,
2: you know, and it always comes back to the budget of the case. Unfortunately, because it does take a lot of time and expenses to go in person, especially if the agency you need to request a record from isn't local to where you're currently at. Mm -hmm. But you know, part of that is communicating with the client, and there's times I know if I really need a certain record and there's just not a budget, I just kind of forfeit that time in the interest of getting the record.
1: Good for you. That's great. So so you talked about the kinds of things you would get for it. Tell me how you use that information.
2: Calls for service records could really be used in any types of cases, whether it's criminal defense, civil litigation, background investigation. So I'll you know it kind of depends on the case that you're looking for and I'll tailor my request or that calls for service record, depending upon the type of case. But generally, I'm looking to get the date of the contact, the, in- the nature of the incident, the report number, in case I want to request that physical report from the contact later, and any persons that were involved with the contact. Mm-hmm. And then from there, generally, I can feel it, feel it out and see if it's something that's going to be pertinent to what I'm looking at, and then request the physical report from the calls for service record. And I I think the thing with calls for service records is you're going to get different information back depending upon the jurisdiction you're requesting it from. Some agencies compartmentalize a lot of this information to other various types of reports, and then others, they combine it all into one report. Um, So it's kind of feeling it out, a little bit of experience dealing with the various agencies. Um, But in general, that's the information you'll get back.
1: Okay. Well, I can certainly see for example, um, that it would, would benefit in a lot of situations, like even uh, uh, car accidents at a specific location, for example? Have you, have you used it in that, in that uh, framework?
2: Yeah, we do a ton of fatal car accidents and severe accidents where we're at. And we, one of the things we always do at the very beginning of every case is request the calls for service records. Because at least in the jurisdictions that we're dealing with, they notate all the individuals who have called 911 or the non-emergency numbers. They notate right. their name and phone number. And that's huge because a lot of times these individuals are calling to report the accident, but they're not sticking around to give a statement to law enforcement for whatever reason. Uh-huh. And it allows us as investigators to develop leads that otherwise would be unavailable.
1: Uh, another application I can see is if you have uh... Oh, say something that's going on in this particular household and and you believe there are multiple calls for service to that address, it would be interesting to know what they are and who was involved.
2: Definitely. You know, when you request calls for service records, most of the jurisdictions, they'll let you request either by name, address, or sometimes you can request by vehicle, and that's kind of spotty, but those are generally the three Um, types of searches you can do. So, you know, like you said, if you're looking into a certain incident at a house and you believe there's been prior contact, you know, definitely Mm -hmm. file that calls for service record on that location and get a list of all the incidents that have happened there. You know, because from there, you can request individual reports, find out exactly what happened, who was there, who was present. You You know, a lot of times you'll be able to document phone numbers for individuals that you can later follow up with, vehicles that were at the scene when the police arrived, I mean, it's just it's a host of intelligence.
1: it's It's a yeah, it's a great tool. It's uh, actually one I had kind of forgotten about. So um, Steve, do you do this on every case?
2: Pretty much. I mean, like any other case, when we take on a new case, the first thing we do is we sit down and we hammer out an investigative outline. And a lot of times I'm creating this outline before I even meet with the attorney for the first time when he or she calls me and gives me the initial thumbnail sketch. And what allows what allows me to do is kind of have a roadmap for where I want to take the case. And I think it also allows you to sit down with the client and show them where you could take the case because they might initially be calling you to maybe to do an interview. But as you sit down and you talk with the client you show them this outline, inherently they're going to ask you to do some of the other services that you know, that you can provide to accomplish that outline. because sometimes they're just not looking at the big picture as to what an investigator can do, how they should be utilized. Uh And one of the things we always put on there is calls for service records. I mean, I can't stress how important I think these records are, you know, especially if you're doing even just background investigations. You know, a lot of people focus on court records when they're looking at backgrounds, But what they fail to see is how many times have they had contact with law enforcement that didn't result in an arrest. You know, all that's very relevant to the, you know, to the background questions. So for me, it's, it's a step I always take. It's very inexpensive. Most of the jurisdictions out here where I'm at, they don't charge for this record. So it's pretty much just my time to draft the letter and complete the form. So I personally think it has a lot of value.
1: Sounds like it. And what, what kind of a format do, does it come in?
2: Again, it kind of varies by the different jurisdictions. Generally, it's going to either be a, a, just a general printout that lists, you know, the information. Or like with the Phoenix Police Department, we do a lot of work uh, in Phoenix, and they'll provide us with a spreadsheet that has the different categories of information on it. And it's, from there, it's like reading any other Excel spreadsheet. So it kind of comes in different formats, just depending upon the jurisdiction. Um, I recently requested some from San Bernardino in California, and for whatever reason, they sent me all the physical reports that were attached to the various calls for service numbers that they had, and they were really great with just providing more than what was requested.
1: That's amazing, actually. And and you know what? I like the... uh what you stated about that you make the assumption that anything that's in a government entity is a public record that, I mean, that's a great uh, posture to go in with, I think, rather than, you know, hat in hand and, and, uh, in a bended knee, begging for the information.
2: Right. You know, and part of it's understanding what a public body is. Uh, for example, charter schools, a lot of people believe, that they can't get records from charter schools because they're private organizations. But really, if you look at the definition of a public body, it's you know, any, organiza- any organization that's supported in whole or in part by monies from the state, or they expend monies on behalf of the state. So most charter schools, you know, they get tax money. So therefore, the records that they're collecting as part of their operation become public record. You know, and a public record can be anything from emails, text messages, police reports, maps, literally anything that the government or the public body produces in the course of their their business.
1: You know, if wow. Okay, so uh, taking that definition like one step further, if you're applying any entity that gets government funds, that would apply to most nonprofits.
2: Yeah, you know, and part of it, again, goes back to is there exemptions in your state laws that prohibit certain types of records, but I always go with the assumption that everything's public record until they can show me something in the law that says it's not, Uh and one of the things I believe is important when you're requesting public records is to specifically have language in your record demanding that the agency you're requesting the records from provide you with an index of records or categories of records that they're denying. And the reason those records are being denied or withheld Um, in Arizona, we actually have a statute that mandates that they have to do that. And they have to Mm -hmm. state the the actual statute of why they're denying it. But even when I request records from out of state, I always put that language in there because I think a lot of people, when they want to deny you, they just, they're going off of something they've heard, but when they're kind of forced to give you the legal reason why they're denying you, they can't find that. Legal reason, you know, if it doesn't exist, so therefore they, they're kind of compelled to provide you with the
1: records. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, a, you know, that's a great pointer. Now, so so are you, do sometimes you have to follow up with with a public records, official public records request um, outside of the request for service records?
2: Are you talking about requesting additional records from the calls for no. service?
1: No, I'm thinking more like uh, California has the California Public Records Act. There's a, you know, it's kind of like doing a, a FOIA, the Federal Records Act, uh, where you have to submit it in a certain format to the agency would be a, a different uh, kind of process than what you're describing for service records.
2: Yeah, and again, it probably depends on the jurisdiction. In Arizona, our law does our law doesn't provide, or our law our law provides that you don't have to provide a written request. Okay. So, for example, you could go in in person and say, "I want to inspect record A, B, and C," mm-hmm. and of course, the agency has to have a reasonable amount of time to be able to produce and gather those records. But you can do in-person inspections without ever filling out a written request. And, you know, that's that's a great way to go, too, if you have a client that maybe they can't afford the the records cost. Because some, some of these records can be pretty expensive if they're extensive and, you know, they are a lot of pages or the materials have to be produced on CDs or redacted. Um, so that's another great avenue is just to go in person and physically inspect the record.
1: Okay. So... Give us some uh, situations that you've run into uh, while you're running where you're doing this. I know you've there must have been some uh, interesting interchanges with the clerk at the desk.
2: Yeah, uh, probably uh, more than I like, but um, for example, we recently we were working on a fatal trucking accident case, and we were trying to get records from the small town where this had occurred and the case had been submitted before a grand jury and was pending charges or, I guess, an indictment. And so they denied us access to any records stating that there was an ongoing investigation and therefore they couldn't release records. Right. Well, I know from prior research that we have court opinions that date you know, pretty far back in time, in Arizona at least, that states that an ongoing investigation is not a reason for denial. And so part of that was, after being denied, drafting response back to them and demanding that they forward my response to their legal counsel for review. So again, it's kind of, it's researching some of the court opinions to be able to combat the denials because you're going to get denied for all kinds of silly reasons. You know, we've had uh-huh. denials stating like, well, this is a commercial purpose. It's, you know, we can only release this for non-commercial use. And again, we have a statute in Arizona that says any records being requested by a private investigator is always non-commercial.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But it's part of understanding what your laws are and then delicately walking that tightrope with the records clerks and their supervisors to educate them.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good point. And, and I would say typically uh, the ones I know about, they uh, records, are refused because there's an ongoing investigation. That's, that's usually what we hear here.
2: You know, and when, when you get that denial, if you don't have a recent court, dis- or if you don't have any court decisions that help you in those situations, I, you know, I usually bring up the news, the aspect of the, the news bodies, you know, how would the news be able to report on current situations? Because everything's essentially ongoing until it's decided in a court of law. Obviously, they're getting access to records as news agencies. So as a PI, you know, you're no different. You're a non-commercial entity. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're gathering records for either as evidence or for research of evidence in support of some type of illegal action in general. So, you know, it's, it's kind of what I've had really good luck with is when I just flat out get denials at a police department, the next thing I'll do is I'll go to, I'll file with the county attorney's office. Generally, you know, what you get there is you're dealing with more, you know, you're dealing with an attorney who's going to understand the public records laws in your state. Uh-huh. And a lot of times they'll instruct the law enforcement agency to turn over those records to you.
1: So so when you submit your request to the police department, do you also submit it to the, the county or city attorney at the t- same time?
2: I always start submitting directly to the police department first. Okay. And then if I get a denial that I just can't rebut, then I'll go to the county attorney's office.
1: Okay. All right. And and so what kind of involvement have you seen with the attorney's office once you've done that?
2: In almost all of our cases, we they've instructed the law enforcement agency to turn the records over to us. We had a recent incident with Phoenix PD where we were trying to get text records from personal cell phones of police officers because we had found evidence that they had used our personal phones in furtherance of their work. So we wanted text messages relating to the incident from their personal phones and they had denied us access to those records. And again, we have a court decision in Arizona that states that, you know, if a government employee uses their personal cell phone while engaged in government business, that cell phone becomes a public record and they flat out just wouldn't comply, so we made the request to the district attorney's office who eventually ordered the police department to turn over the text messages to us.
1: Okay. And then how did you get them at that point?
2: At that point, the police department sent us a CD that contained all the records after they were ordered by the county attorney's office to disclose them.
1: And so were you? did you actually pick them up? Did they send them to you? How did that happen?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, pick, I pick the records up in person. I mean, most of the time I'm going to pick the records up in person if it's a location that's close to where I'm operating. You know, so obviously sometimes they're going to mail them to you or email them to you. Mm-hmm. Um, I always prefer, you know, and that's another good point, is when you get public records, for the most part, I always make sure that I request electronic records because a lot of times when you're getting the electronic records, you can request the metadata behind the electronic records versus if they print them out and hand them to you, you obviously lose the metadata behind there, right? behind the data that you're receiving. And then also, you know, it's just it's another step. Now you have to scan it into your system and create, you know, take a paper record to create an electronic record because I think most of us are probably operating on paperless <laughs> systems these
1: days. Yeah, well... We are. We aren't yet, but we try. Uh, (laughs) So, okay, so when you get the metadata, how do you use that?
2: Generally, we'll use it to try to authenticate the record, if it's a question. I mean, you know, you're going to have a lot of records where you're – there's no question that the record is true and correct. You know, it just – you know, if it's just something as simple as, you know, I'm trying to get a toe sheet or whatever, like and I don't suspect there's any, you know, government conspiracy going on behind the record, I don't really care about trying to authenticate that. Uh But if I'm getting certain photographs that I think were edited or cell phone records that I think have been manipulated, then I like to have that metadata because I can go back and see when the record was created, if it's been edited, you know, things like that. Um, What comes to mind a lot is surveillance video. There's a lot of new federal rules of evidence basically stating that you have to have metadata behind video in order for it to be accepted. Okay. So the classic show up with your cell phone. The police officer records the video from seven eleven on his cell phone off of the security camera and then presents that in court. That's those days are gone.
1: Right. Right. Very interesting, Um, Steve. We're going to have to take a quick break, but I'm I'm fascinated by by your comments about manipulated data that you're getting from the PDs. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Steve Mason, and we'll be talking about more about getting our records from official agencies.
0: the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com.
1: I'm here with uh, Steve Mason, Stephen Mason, licensed investigator from Arizona, and we're talking about getting information from the police departments regarding what we believe are public records. So, um, you you made a comment, Steve, about uh, checking the metadata to make sure uh, information you're getting isn't manipulated. Can you tell me more about that?
2: Sure. So, when you have when you receive electronic evidence you know, whether it's in the form of a video, PDF, photograph, assuming they provided you with a true and correct original copy of that record, then you can run different metadata programs against those files to determine, you know, what the metadata characteristics are. You know, and sometimes if it's, you know, like a video or a photo and it just kind of goes beyond your capability, you may have to involve some type of a forensic, you know, expert Mm -hmm. to look at that data but inherently you're going to have the metadata to be able to show when things were created, when they were edited. And I, you know, that can be very important when you're looking at investigative reports. A lot of times I I've never had it happen to me, but I've heard situations where individuals have gone back and they've edited police reports to reflect information that they wanted it to say. So maybe when they were initially investigating something, they made certain comments in their reports and then Months later, they collect new evidence that discredits what they had written or goes against what an individual had told them. An officer, you know, in theory, could go back and edit that report. And, Mm. you know, with things like PDFs nowadays, you can see when when, when a PDF has been edited, you know, what the original creation date was, things Mm. like that. So you may be able to detect if a report's been manipulated.
1: Okay. All right. That's good information. You've never had that happen personally, though.
2: I haven't had it happen, but I'm always I'm always aware that that could be a possibility. Um, generally, I don't subscribe to too many government conspiracy theories. Just having worked <laughs> for the government, right? My my understanding is you have to get a whole lot of people that generally don't like working together all to go in and risk their jobs and possibly imprisonment for a conspiracy. Right. But that said, you know, it it, it does happen.
1: I, yeah. Sometimes the stakes are very high, and uh, it could happen. Oh, and so, what about uh, m- manipulating videos and things like that? Have you run into anything like that?
2: I haven't run any. I haven't run into any of those issues. Um, we've had a couple issues where we believe that the videos weren't collected on the dates and times that the officers had alleged, but they had inherently they all checked out. But okay, you know, again, just. Preserving that metadata, I think, is important because you never know where a case is going to go, what type of information might become available later, if there's appeals. And sometimes it's just doing the due diligence for the client, you know, and providing them with all the resources that are available. And, you know, sometimes you have to have those hard talks with the clients and just let them know the evidence is what it is and it's true and correct.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You really were. Your telephone really was at the crime scene.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and that's, exactly. Sometimes those are just hard conversations to have. And, <laughs> but as investigators, we're filing facts, and those are. That's just part of our job. Is we have to sit down and have open dialogue with our clients. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so w- when you get. Um, uh. Can, do you get the call records and things like that as well?
2: For, are you talking you about like, like that, cell phone the call officers? records? Sometimes we'll request it for the officers involved in the scene. Um, generally, it's we try to stick to requesting records that we think are going to be helpful for where we want the case to go. Okay. Because um, I, I think, you know, you can you can burden yourself with too many requests. You know, because a big part of those requests is having to track the request to make sure that they're being fulfilled, that they're being delivered to the appropriate persons that they need to go to once you do get them. Um, so like, for example, right now I have over f- probably almost 400 record requests that are outstanding for different do cases you, out there. Do you really? And so I'm literally having... The, yeah, so I, I've kind of created a method for tracking those requests. And, it, it, you know, it's simple. What I do is I create an Excel spreadsheet and I list the date that I made the request, the case number that I'm making the request for, the type of record I requested, the agency I requested from, and then I'll have a section for notes. And so what I do is once a week, I look at this Excel spreadsheet and I look at what's outstanding. If I feel the time frame is getting to be too long, then I start making inquiries to find out, hey, where are these records that we requested? Because a lot of these requests seem to get lost in the process especially with right. some of the bigger cities.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: pretty soon you can figure out that you're not getting anything back. And, you know, so you definitely need to follow up on those requests.
1: So, okay, so you, so you get something back and you find that it is beneficial to your case and you want to introduce it in court. Do you then need to subpoena the record so it, it is a legal introduction?
2: A lot of the records that we get back, they contain uh, something on letterhead from the police department certifying that the records are true and correct that they're providing. So it's essentially the same as what you would get with a subpoena. And a lot of the agencies will do that so that they themselves don't have to get called in the court to authenticate their own records. So Mm -hmm. the records essentially authenticate themselves. But what we'll do is we'll lay the foundation. So in, in our investigation file, I'll keep a copy of the request. I'll write a you know a memo that on this date I filed this request. On this date I received the request back. These were the records received, and then obviously I have the records themselves. So if you need need if need be, you can lay the foundation in court as to how you came into possession of those records. Um, obviously, if it's if it's some record that's going to make or break your case, you know you can definitely follow up and research. Subpoena those records or even mm-hmm. call someone from the jurisdiction to testify as the custodian of records. But generally, they authenticate themselves.
1: Okay, and and then if you've been denied records, uh, have you had situations where you've had to follow up either with a subpoena or a court order?
2: Exactly, and that's, in, you know, it's different for each state, but in Arizona, if we have an open case number, a private investigator can go to the court themselves and get subpoenas. You don't even have to go through an attorney to do it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So if we have an open case, I literally can go get blank subpoenas from the clerk of court and handwrite names of businesses and the types of records I'm looking for. And as I'm out and about, I can serve those subpoenas right on the spot for those records.
1: Wow, that's um, nice. We don't have that here.
2: Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> pretty unique. Um, but generally, I start with the public records request. Sometimes what you can do is if you're working with a prosecutor, say it's a criminal defense case and you get a denial, a lot of times you can make the request to the prosecutor for the specific records you're looking at. And through the discovery process, most mm-hmm. of those prosecutors will, will call up the law enforcement agent in charge of the case and ask them to turn that record over to you.
1: Right. Um, yeah. And sometimes they don't Sometimes you, they say, no, that's not their job. <laughs> yeah, you know. exactly. And then, then you're fighting a battle. Um, you know, there's, there's
2: different, in Arizona, at least, so we have an ombudsman for public records that will help mediate public records disputes between an individual and a police department.
3: Uh-huh. And they're
2: kind of a good source because they understand the laws and the court decisions very well. And they're used to dealing with various law enforcement agencies, so they have those relationships. Sometimes you have to file an action before the court and just make your case. And, you know, that's obviously a last resort, but a lot of times that's what it comes down to is is filing these special actions. I mean, one of my colleagues here in the Valley, Rich Robertson, you know, he's he's been very successful in filing special actions against agencies in court and winning, which has resulted in a lot of new case law for us. But, you know, so there's there's different remedies when you get denials. Don't just... If it's a record that's important to you, just don't accept the denial. You know, figure out where you can go with it.
1: I'm still blown away by the fact that you have 400 outstanding records <laughs> requests. <then>. That's <laughs> well, uh, You know, that's one of them astounding. was an interesting case. It, it was <laughs> a,
2: a nursing home abuse case. So we, had, uh, we did a calls for service request for all police contact at the address. And we came back with over 4,000 calls for service for that one location.
1: Wow. So then
2: it was kind of going through those calls for service and figuring out what calls might relate to the conduct that we were investigating, and then we refiled for those reports. So that one case alone, I think we might have filed almost 200 requests for police reports.
1: Amazing. Over, and what period of time did that span?
2: That was You're a five-year period of time.
1: Yeah, the time period that you were looking at.
2: Yeah, it was a five-year period of time, and there was almost 4,000 police contacts at this location.
1: And that facility has a problem.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and something to think about is, you know, because there's a contact doesn't always mean it's bad. So, for right. example, what we saw, this facility does a lot of counseling. And as mandatory reporters, if you come in and you tell a counselor about, mm-hmm. say, sexual abuse, then they're obligated to report it. So a lot of these, a lot of the calls were, you know, they, they, it wasn't anything negative against the facility. It was just documented contact that was kind of normal for that type of facility, you know, or like say a hospital, you know, they're getting a lot of patients from car accidents, victims of crime. So police are being dispatched to those locations to interview or to follow up. Mm -hmm. So those are creating calls for service records. So, you know, it may not be that unusual to have that high of a number of records. But the problem for us as investigators is we have to sift through that and say, okay, we have 4,000 calls. What's what's pertinent to what we're looking at? And you know, what's the issues?
1: Specifically.
2: And that's kind of where, you know, the art of requesting records starts to come into play.
1: Right. Okay. So, um what other kinds of public records requests? I mean, this I, I find this kind of an unusual uh, process, just so you know, just for me. It may not be for other investigators out there, but for me, it's, a, it's a, a unique process to get access. What other kinds of uh, public records resources do you use?
2: So I think we're all pretty familiar with requesting police reports you know, motor vehicles, information, things things like that. So I think some of the common overlooked records might be, aside from calls for service records, would be, you know, computer-aided dispatch reports, which is commonly referred to as CAD. Mm -hmm. You know, those reports document all dispatch records to and from the dispatch center to the officers, you know, contains the incident history, which officers were on scene, what was their role. Um, That's often overlooked. Um, mobile data terminal records, MDT records, those are the basically the car computer records. So we've all seen police vehicles with car computers in them. Those computers are generating records. And the big thing with those records is those officers, most of the time they can communicate car to car through those MDTs without ever going on the air. And so what we see with those records is you have officers physically they're talking about the case, they're discussing theories. Sometimes they're saying inappropriate things. All that's being recorded and is public record. Um, personnel files, that's huge for us. I know it's a little difficult in California because you guys have different laws. In our state, we can inspect the personnel file of a police officer upon request and we get everything. Their application for employment, any polygraph tests they had as part of their employment, I mean, literally wow. anything. A lot of these files can be a thousand pages. Mm.
3: So mm-hmm. we see
2: we see a lot of misconduct in those files. That sometimes helps us in the case. Um, body camera videos obviously is a very big thing to be requesting. Yeah,
1: you know, uh, yeah. I was just going to ask you about body cams. Uh, are you requesting body cams as a specific uh, request?
2: Yes, definitely. And. Oh you
1: know, a lot, and
2: body camera videos is excellent because you're getting, so what people need to understand, right, when they get a police report and there's a statement from a witness, that's the officer's summary of the statement. It's not necessarily the specific statement that the witness or the victim said. So with the body camera videos, you're getting the actual real-time statement from the witness or the victim. You know, you're able to see the body language. A lot of what we do with these videos is, we use them, the canvas, because you're seeing through the lens of the video what the scene looked like in real time, what vehicles were present. We use this a lot for accident cases where the officers show up, they have their body cameras on, they talk to one witness, and then they clear the scene. But you you see all the vehicles that are pulled over, perhaps because they witnessed the accident. So we'll get those license plates, we'll run them, and then we'll go out and make contact with those individuals and figure out what they saw, what they heard. I mean, it's just, a, it's a plethora of, of, of leads in those videos.
1: These are really fascinating ideas because, you know, for folks that do criminal defense, uh, we get all of this in discovery, but when you're talking about private cases, I guess I wasn't even aware that you had access to all of these things like the body cams, for example.
2: Yeah, you know, you can use them in so many different ways. A lot of times um, we've even used them in family law cases where an individual is mentally disturbed and they've had repeated contact with the police. Mm-hmm. Well, First, obviously, you have to determine all the contacts they've had the, with the police. But from there, we start requesting all the body camera videos from those contacts. What you can see on those videos is people strung out on drugs, acting out, being very aggressive with the police. You know, you kind of get them in their raw form. And so we start collecting all these videos as evidence as to, you know, the, how the person's acting. And it's, it's been great for us. I mean, there's, there's so many different uses for these body camera videos.
1: So what, what kinds of obstacles have you encountered getting this information? Uh, I mean, I know, I know I, you've probably gotten outright denials, but what other kind of obstacles have you encountered?
2: I think the big obstacle is timeliness of your request. You know, one of the problems is, as private investigators is we get these cases and sometimes they're very old. So we, we run into retention issues where maybe the body camera video existed, but they, they don't retain them indefinitely, especially if there's no criminal or civil case pending. Um, so I have one now, a civil case, and the jurisdiction only maintains body camera video for six months in civil cases, and our mm-hmm. incident's about a year old, so the video's no longer available. Um, so it, kind of what we see is there's a lot of issues with retention of, of this evidence. Right. Um, but, you know, it, it's important to definitely have letters of preservation ready to go when you get a case to start serving these agencies to make sure they preserve this evidence. You know, 911 calls is a great example. Most agencies only retain those for so many months. So as soon as you get a case, you want to file that letter of preservation because even though you filed your public records request, they may not fulfill your request for five months. And until they actually start working on your request,
1: they're not, they're not holding on to that evidence.
2: So, mm-hmm. you know, if it takes a long time to get to your
1: request, that evidence could be gone. Yeah, for sure. I can see that. So, uh, Steve, we just have a little time left. I think we should probably go back, um, and, and this has been great, by the way, great information. Uh, I, why don't we go back to filing for the official records request and what you actually put in your document when you write it out?
2: Sure. So the first thing I do is obviously I determine all the relevant jurisdictions where I need to file these requests. So if you're looking at an individual, you want to determine, you know, their residential history, where they went to school, where they liked to the vacation, where their relatives live, because you're going to file requests with all these agencies, potentially. Then The next thing I'm going to do is I'm going to research the process for filing requests in each jurisdiction, because sometimes they're different forms or, you know, it's just, it's a little bit of a different process. Maybe they want to email, maybe they want it hard mailed. You can do it in person so you are kind of just gathering, basically, how do I have to file the request to satisfy their requirement? Okay. But from there, I'm going to, but from there, I'm going to create my own letterhead, officially stating what I'm looking for. So at the top of the letter, I'm going to have language that, hey, this is an official public records request, and I'm going to identify the jurisdiction that I'm seeking. I'm going to cite my public records statute that allows me to seek these records. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to go into specific detail with exactly what I'm looking for so there's no mistake as to what records I specifically want.
1: Okay, give me an example of that, agency, can you? I'm sorry? Can Can you give me an example of that? What, when sure. You, so when if you I'm say requesting records
2: want. for a criminal defense case, I'm going to specifically re- put in my request that I want all the department reports. I want any written or audio statements, any body camera. I want any forensic reports. I don't want any outside expert reports. And that one's kind of an important one because a lot of the departments don't have labs in-house, mm-hmm. so they're sending them out either to another agency or to uh, private entities in some cases. Or in the in the case of, you know, like a fatal accident, most smaller police departments don't have their own accident reconstruction. So they have contracts with private companies to do that for them. So if you're not requesting these outside agency reports, you may never see that stuff. Um, so I'm literally just going to go down. I'm going to list every specific type of report that I can think of. That's going to be put potentially available from this department. And I'm going to put a mm-hmm. all on this request.
1: Okay, now I can see on a criminal side. defense case that they would just, their re- response would be, uh, this is information you get through discovery. Well,
2: and that's, that's great that they give it to you in discovery. Part of why we file our public records request is to make sure that the government's complied with discovery. Because we see this all the time where we get discovery, and then we file a parallel public records request, and we get more in the public records request than we get in hmm. discovery. And that, that's a problem because what's happening in most cases is the prosecutor calls over to the agent says, Hey, I need all your departmental reports relating to this incident. And then the, the prosecutor provides that, you know, to the defense or whoever. Mm-hmm. So they're only, they're only providing what they are given. Sometimes the officers don't even realize that these other records have been generated.
1: Right. You know,
2: like they, they may not realize that their dispatch department just generated three different types of reports in addition to the report that they filed. So we see this all the time that we, we get more information in public records requests than we get from the prosecutor's office. And part of that is to make sure that the government's fulfilling their responsibility. Um, so interesting. That's, we that's summary, really interesting. We, we always I, this
1: is this is great information for private investigators. For the, those of you that are listening out there that aren't private investigators, it may be a little scary, but for private investigators, this is fabulous information.
2: Yeah, it, you know, and the one thing I, I think as private investigators, we have to be really focused on knowing our public records laws
3: and mm-hmm. how to
2: use them. Kind of just a personal observation. The older generation is very good at public records because they had to find information back before there was PLO and all these open source, you know, techniques. Correct. But I I think the the younger generation, sometimes they become over-reliant on these databases and these open source intelligent techniques. And those are all really great, uh, you know, things to steer us in direction, but Mm -hmm. they're not evidence. So if you're working on a criminal or civil case, you can run open source intelligence all day long and come up with great stuff, but you don't know the source of that information. You have nothing to authenticate it. Whereas a public record is a, you know, it's a government produced document that you can authenticate and you can submit as evidence versus just having intelligence.
1: It's yeah, it's great. It's just, uh, it's fabulous. So, oh, uh, so back to the request, you so you wanted to say, um, that you're you're detailing
2: all the records you're looking for. Right. After I detail all the records I'm looking for,
1: mm
2: -hmm. I'm going to put some language at the bottom of the request stating that in the event that they refuse the request, I want a list of all the records they're refusing and the reasons for the denial. And inherently what that's going to do is it's going to force them to articulate why you can't have something Mm-hmm. And a lot of times once they're forced to do that, they're just going to give you the record because they're not going to be able to find the reason why they de- they're they denying you. Right. Um, and like in our, in our state, it's mandated by law that they have to provide you that index along with the statutes as to why they're denying you. And it might be different in different areas, but most public record statutes from state to state are kind of similar in fashion. So, I'll cite the public records law section that mandates that they do that. And then I always end the request with an offer to make payment for any public records fees that are incurred by the request just to let them know that, you know, we're willing and able to to pay for the request, that we're not just expecting this for free.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and then and I, I, I hand-deliver
2: there... these requests. I I almost we'll... never mail them. I never email them. It's it's always in person if I can.
1: Okay. And what kind of costs are involved?
2: Generally, they'll give you a per page cost, or if they have to put something on CD, they may charge you for the CD. I mean, it, some agencies they I, I, some agencies don't charge, and other agencies will charge you know hundred bucks, fifty bucks. It just kind of depends on the amount of information you're requesting. So obviously, so it's important it's, to work that out with the client beforehand.
1: Yeah, so it's not exorbitant at any rate.
2: No, no. I To me, it's always in addition to whatever our hourly fees are. I mean, their expenses. Sure. You know, we keep track of those costs and provide the client with the receipts.
1: Okay. All right. Well, this is this is great, Steve. I, before we – we're at the end of our time, but before we leave the show, I want to shout out to Rich Robertson because you did mention him. He's a fantastic investigator in Arizona and Phoenix. Um And uh, has made some huge inroads into getting public records uh, through some lawsuits that he's been involved in. So, shout out to Rich. Um, And we're at the end of our show, Steve. Thank you so much. This has been fascinating, very valuable information. I appreciate you being on the show and sharing your knowledge with us.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And for the rest of you folks, tune in again as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Steve Mason. Every Thursday morning, it's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening.
0: You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler.